And I was teaching on the book of Judges and I, I encountered something which, well, I've encountered it before, but it just struck me with a fresh force and I thought I would share it with you. It has to do with the topic of parenting uh, and the significance of parenting uh, in the life of the people of God and in the, the history of the world, if that's not too uh, melodramatic a way of putting it. And I really don't think it is. Just a bit of background. You know very well that the book of Judges describes the history of the people of Israel during the three or four centuries or so after the first generation of the Israelites settled in the promised land in the days of Joshua. So it begins chapter one, verse one, after the death of Joshua, uh, the people of Israel said, well, who should go up against the Canaanites to fight against them? And they, uh, the people of Judah went up, they took Simeon with them and so on. And in the first chapter, you've got this mixture really of the conquest going quite well in times, uh, at times and then going terribly on other occasions. Uh, and uh, then you've got um, from about chapter three onwards through to chapter 16, a, a repeating cycle, a 12-fold cycle, which really amounts to a downhill spiral of Israel's life in which they repeatedly sin against God. Uh, he acts in judgment against them by uh, calling against them enemies from outside or tyrants from within. Then they cry out to the Lord for help. Uh, he raises up a judge to rescue them uh, from their oppressors and then they have rest for a period of time before the whole cycle begins again and round and round it goes and down and down it goes. Beginning with Othniel, who's the paradigm judge through Ehud and Shamgar and then Deborah uh, and uh, Gideon and, uh, and then the story just goes on and on and on. And uh, what all that does, oh, and then at the end, I should say, you've got five chapters, 17 through 21, of uh, chaos at the end, which really describes the situation that prevailed throughout the history of um, the, uh, the period of the judges, in which you have uh, immorality and chaos in the, the uh, sanctuary, the worship structures of Israel's life, and tension and amounting to near civil war between the tribes. So... Uh, all that raises the question, well, what is it? What is it that could possibly explain how Israel goes from the heady days of Joshua, where, as we've been discovering in our sermons, notwithstanding the fact that the conquest was somewhat incomplete in the days of Joshua, there was great progress. And indeed, there was great faithfulness during the uh, days of Joshua, at least periodically. Um, in Judges chapter 2, uh, the author notes that the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua who had seen the things that the Lord had done for Israel. So there is this sense that however imperfect Israel's life had been during uh, the days of Joshua that we've been reading about and learning about in our sermons in recent months, nonetheless, um, there, there was great progress and a degree of faithfulness. And the people of Israel did conquer vast swathes of land. Remember Joshua 11 and Joshua 12. So what on earth could have ex uh, gone wrong to explain um, the beginning and the, the continuation of Israel's cataclysmic de decline for hundreds of years? And the answer is found in Judges chapter 2, where it says, after having said that the people of Israel were faithful during the days of Joshua and the elders who outlived him, there arose another generation who did not know the Lord and did not know what he'd done for Israel. In other words, the people of Israel entered this period of 
near terminal decline for centuries after centuries because they did not raise their children to know the Lord and to know what he'd done for his people. Specifically, the two parts of that are worth reflecting on. They didn't know the Lord. They didn't have a personal relationship and closeness with God himself. That's obvious because at the start of chapter 2, it explains that they turned from God to idols and worshipped Baal and the other idols of the people of the land. And they didn't know what he'd done for Israel. That is to say, they didn't have any sense of the mighty acts of Israel's history. They didn't know about the Exodus. They didn't know about the crossing of the Red Sea and the crossing of the Jordan. Um, Even the memory of the conquest itself seems to have faded. People didn't think it was worth passing on to their kids what Joshua, Jesus, their great savior, had done for them. So here you got a picture of a critical moment in Israel's life where the people took for granted what they had received. Perhaps they trusted somewhat presumptuously in the promises that they'd received from the Lord. They thought, well, we're the people of God. We've inherited the land. And they didn't pass on to their kids the knowledge of God and the history, the account of God's gracious dealings with his people um, in previous uh, years and generations. Now, it doesn't take much by way of um, biblical theological nous to see the connection between this text and our day. How dangerous it would be for us to make the same mistake, to be presumptuous, to forget that we have a responsibility to pass on to our children both the knowledge of what the Lord has done for us in Christ, our Jesus, our Joshua, and also, of course, to welcome them through those promises into the living relationship with Christ, which he promises to have with them. He promises to be God to us and to our children. But we must never forget that those promises are connected with And in one sense, depend for their fulfillment upon our spirit-given faithfulness to the covenant. Now, we should be careful here. We're not going to start saying that our our salvation depends upon us in some absolute sense. But in one sense, it isn't wrong to say that our salvation depends upon us. Uh, It's materially granted by the Lord as a gift from him to his people. But at the same time, uh, we're told to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who is at work in us to do and to act uh, and to will and to do according to his good purposes. Uh, we, we know that God's sovereign grace never excludes his grace in and through the people to whom he's being gracious. His grace is seen in our commitment to him. It's no use to say, and none of us would say this, while well, Jesus has saved me, it doesn't matter what I do. That's actually a deeply unbiblical thought. Think about it in another way. The flip side of faith is repentance. Jesus says, repent and believe the gospel. Or again, he said, the, the word faith itself, pistis in the Greek New Testament, um, uh, means faithfulness. There's not even a semantic difference between faith and faithfulness in scripture. Now we can articulate a conceptual difference. Of course, it is one thing to live in a certain way. It is another thing to trust a person, to trust Christ. But nonetheless, that life is not to be separated from that trust. So whichever way you cut it, whichever way you try and uh, view uh, 
heritage of Reformed biblical theology, we cannot escape the fact that as believers in Christ, we are called to live faithfully before him, and to a very great extent, our inheritance of those promises which God has graciously and unilaterally given to us depend on our response of faithfulness to him. That response which is spirit-given, but which is nonetheless still our response. So you feed all that back into Judges chapter 2 and you discover that the people of Israel did not respond faithfully by passing on to their children the, the greatest news of all, the good news, the gospel, that uh, God is gracious to us and to our children. What foolishness not to take that seriously. So that's where we, just to zoom out for a moment, that's where we were you know, looking at the book of Judges with these young people um, uh, in uh, Summer Sanctuary, California. And I'm musing on this a little bit more in conversation with um, a couple of the leaders and with a couple of the young people. And it occurred to me that uh, the catastrophe of Judges chapter 2 is far from unique. In fact, when you think about it, you search your Bible almost in vain to find any examples of people who were really faithful parents and passed on the heritage of the faith they'd received faithfully to their children. Just think about it for a moment. Um, you find no shortage in Scripture of heroic battles being won. Indeed, the book of Judges itself is full of plenty of those. And then you think of David and uh, you think of uh, others in the, uh, in the days of Moses and other great eras of Israel's history. And then you think of other kind of battles, not so much military in nature, but cultural conflicts where the people of God stood up and were counted. Think about the days of Daniel or of Ezra or Nehemiah or Joseph. Uh, all those situations, the Bible is littered with examples of people showing faithfulness in conflict situations. It seems, though, that the number of times where you've got strong multi-generational faithfulness throughout the people of God for multiple generations, I'm, I'm struggling to think of a single one that extends across the whole of the people of God. I can think of examples where you've got one family that does a reasonably good job. Uh, Boaz springs to mind. And you look at the genealogy uh, at the end of the book of Ruth, um, with 10 generations uh, from uh, Perez down to uh, King David, and the last three of those being Boaz and his um, uh, children, great-grandchildren, uh, children, grandchildren, <laughs> great-grandchildren. Well, it looks like Boaz was a reasonable, indeed a godly, a good father and husband. But just look through the leading lights of the people of God. Look at the patriarchs. Abraham, I mean, hardly a model husband uh, or father. Well, you know, his um, uh, children, uh, there was conflict between them. Similarly with Jacob, uh, with, with Isaac and his uh, children, Jacob and Esau, conflict there. Jacob uh, in the line of promise. Uh, again, he has 12 sons and before long they're all trying to kill each other. Not for the, Well, they're all trying to kill one of their member. Not for the first time. Think of Adam with his sons, um, uh, Cain and Abel. Um, and you look even at the great ones of biblical history, the great warriors, people like uh, David and Solomon, uh, terrible, terrible fathers. Think of Samson, uh, not Samson, Samuel, similar, similarly. I mean, Samson would have been a terrible father. Think of his relationships with um, the women in his life, so to speak. But um, uh, Solomon is almost a picture of the worst possible husband and father, and no wonder that the kingdom split and declined so rapidly uh, after his reign was over. So what do we learn from this? Well, 
couple of thoughts spring to mind. First, um, maybe the task of raising godly, faithful children is not just more decisive than we might have realized, but more difficult than we might have realized. I think it's highly possible that we may have just taken for granted that this task is basically, you know, to be uh, something that we can just depend on and, well, because anybody can have kids, anybody can raise them. Maybe that's the mistake we've made. Um, It is the case that uh, most people who are married, the vast majority of people who are married, are able to have children. But maybe we've succumbed to a serious mistake here. What we've got is we've uh, been blessed with the reality of children. We look at the promises to our children. And what we fail to realize is that the task of raising faithful children might just be the most difficult thing. Might just be the most difficult thing to do in Scripture. It wouldn't be surprising, would it? I mean, we're certainly living in a world in which um, motherhood in particular, and actually in many contexts, fatherhood as well, are despised. Um, It's assumed that a woman uh, who devotes herself to raising her children for a few decades is basically wasting whatever education she might have had. Um, Aren't you going to get a proper job or are you just going to be a mum? I lost count of the number of times that um, my wife, Nicole, was asked that question when uh, our children were very young. Uh, and even as they grew older. Um, and I wonder whether the, the, the difficulty with that, well, there are many difficulties with that um, way of viewing things, but one of the uh, critically flawed assumptions is that this is basically easy and any fool could do it. Why would you want to devote yourself to something so trivial? It's not just trivial in importance. Obviously, it's not trivial in importance to raise children. It's a monumental privilege. But maybe it's not trivial in its difficulty either. Maybe it is extremely hard to do it well. Well, that would kind of fit, wouldn't it? Maybe it would fit with our experience. Um, If you think about your own life, maybe fathers and mothers perhaps, you may be highly competent in many uh, contexts, perhaps professionally and uh, very learned. You might have um, uh, academic and professional qualifications aplenty. You might be doing great in your Uh, work, but how often is it that your three-year-old will just drive you to distraction to the point where you simply don't know what to do to make things work out as they ought to work out? Maybe actually in our experience we see this and what we need to do is to realize it and respond to it. How would you respond to that? Maybe it's the obvious point, isn't it? If we are faced with one particular task in our lives, which is not only the most um, blessed to raise the Lord's children, and the most uh, uh, important to give, by God's grace, life and spiritual life to another human being, but actually the most difficult, maybe what we ought to be doing is thinking very, very hard indeed about how to do this well, and not just drifting along, as perhaps it's uh, tempting for us to do, just following whatever seems obvious or whatever seems natural or whatever we learned from uh, somebody else whether they were a good role model or not. Maybe this is something that uh, there are depths here to this task that remain unexplored by us and which we ought to think about more in future. That at least is where where I was left um, uh, after having had those conversations following uh, teaching the book of Judges in California this week. Um, I have to say, personally, like many of you I know, I've I've read and I I know you've read 
a good number of books on Christian child rearing. Some of them are very good, some of them are less good, but all of them you learn something from. I just wonder if maybe we're only just really scratching the surface. What if we have not thought sort of 50 or 60% of the way through this problem, much less 90% of the way through it? What if we've only thought one or 2% of the way through this challenge and there remains far, far more that we could be doing?